Okay, so last week we started some background information. Oh, my wife is here this morning. Uh, so this is the first time we've uh, been together in the Sunday school class, uh, but I've only been here four times, I think. No, we came once as a visitors. Yeah, but um, so she was serving in second hour in nursery, and we had asked about her switching to first hour so that we could at least go to church together. And when Brian and Kinsey heard about that, they said, "No, nope, she needs to be on the reserve list for uh, uh, nursery so that you guys can worship together and be in Sunday school class together." So we're very thankful for our elders and leaders in that respect. So welcome. Uh, I'm still getting a grasp of who's here and who's not and when and uh, how often because uh, it seems like it's a little bit different group every Sunday, uh, although we have our standard uh, core that comes regularly. Um, I distributed this uh, chart last week, a way to study the book of Galatians uh, in one page, just to do paragraph by paragraph, a sentence that describes what takes place in that paragraph. Uh, also, some questions to answer just as you observe in general, uh, what, the, um, uh, what is said about the author, Paul, about the recipients and their circumstances. I don't know if any of you use this. I haven't gotten any emails asking for a digital copy. But is there anybody who would like a copy of this who hasn't gotten one? All right. And then I have one more distri- or, uh, handout for later. There you go. One for Jason. And all right. And this is just a tool that I always use when I start studying a book of the Bible. Um, And my email is on the back page at the bottom. So if anybody wants a digital copy so they can type into their uh, computer, feel free to email me and I'll send it to you. Tim actually emailed me last night and said, hey, I listened to your message. Uh, Can I get that handout? It was really encouraging. Um, Okay. Now... The f- oh, perfect timing, perfect timing. So the reason I love, uh, I love preaching. I believe in preaching. I think preaching should be the primary means of nourishing God's family on a regular basis. But I also love dialogue teaching. I love hearing from you, hearing your questions. Um, and actually last week was a response to one of the questions that was asked two weeks ago. And last week... Becky posed a question, and I answered it off the top of my head, not realizing I had all the information to answer this question in front of me, and I answered it wrongly. But the good thing about dialogue teaching is I know what your questions are. Pastors have this uh, virus. They tend to answer their own questions. They don't answer the questions that the people have. And so we get all complicated. We, we have this gift of saying in 100 words what a normal person could say with 10 words, and we complicate things. So I appreciate your questions, and sometimes those questions lead to uh, just clarity and further understanding. So, do you remember the question you asked last week, Becky? Um, it was about God-bearers versus the Gentiles, the Jews. Right. Who was allowed in the synagogue. In the synagogue. And I, off the top of my head, answered the question related to the temple, right? Because we're familiar, we're more familiar with the temple. Right, This is a picture of Solomon's, uh, not Solomon's temple, the New Testament temple, Herod's temple um, in New Testament times. And so I started thinking about that and I thought, boy, I, I answered that kind of quickly, but I'm not really sure about that answer. And again, like I said, I had the, 
I had to answer the question in my notes. I just didn't think about it. So, first of all, as best as I can tell, and, and there, is this, there is debate about all these uh, things. If you're a Gentile in the New Testament, and you accepted Judaism completely, which we said last week meant that you lived by the Torah, that you uh, offered sacrifices, that you were baptized into Judaism, and that you were circumcised, then you were treated like a Jew. You were accepted in the same way a Jew was. Now, again, you can always find evidence that these things were debated, uh, that there were different uh, parties uh, on these different issues. And so it's hard to be dogmatic. And this is all important because of the issue that Galatians deals with, the whole issue of circumcision and acceptance into the covenant family. So, again, I admit I thought immediately about the temple when uh, Becky asked her question last week. Now, we know that in the temple there were multiple courts. It's a little bit hard to see. Thank you, uh, Troy. Uh, This is a picture of the area around this uh, rectangle, which is called the Court of the Gentiles. And the Court of the Gentiles was a place in the temple anybody could go. There is no restrictions except for women who were at that moment unclean. And I'll just leave that at that. But uh, all other uh, foreigners, anyone could go into this area. But then there was the court of women where Jewish women and men, and I'm going to say proselytes, could um, enter into this area. And then there was a court for the Israelites, meaning the Jewish men, that could go this far. Again, I think, as far as I can tell, proselytes who had completely accepted Jewish religion were allowed in this section. And then beyond this little wall here, only the priests, the court of the priests, were allowed. And they had to be in uniform, evidently. They had to have their priestly garb on to enter in that at least according to uh, one New Testament scholar. So that was what was in my head, that kind of background information when Becky asked her question. But then, and you can turn the light back on for now. Thank you. Um, well, let me just ask you this as far as uh, you don't need the light. Uh, trivia or background information. How many temples were there in Jerusalem in the Bible? Yeah, that we know of in the Bible, in the history, not at any one time. Three? Two? I guess in history is probably not a fair way to say There's actually four, but one of them's future, Ezekiel's millennial kingdom, that he describes in Ezekiel 40 to 48. So there was Solomon's temple, and then uh, which was huge and grand. Ezekiel's temple is about twice the size of Solomon's temple. And then there was the very humble uh, temple built by Zerubbabel and, uh, during the time of Nehemiah when the Jews came back to the land. Uh, and if you remember, uh, it says there that some people rejoiced and some people wept when they dedicated the temple because it didn't have the glory of the previous temple. But at least they were back in the land and they had their place of worship. And then that temple was expanded by Herod during the New Testament times into the temple that we typically think of. So four temples in Jerusalem mentioned in the Bible, and then of course 
long term, there'll be the new heavens, the new earth, and the temp- there will be no temple, right? Because the Lord will be with us. And so, um, so that's what I was thinking when Becky asked her question. And this was destroyed in, who remembers? 70 AD, right. The Romans came in and raised it. Okay. And then from that time on, there was no central worship place for the Jews. Um, Right now, the uh, yes, um, yeah, it's all ruined. There's a big, there's a mosque up there, exactly where they want to put the temple, right? Um, but it's just a place of kind of mourning because they they don't they're not in their place. They don't have the place that they the want to be. The wailing wall is down at the base, oh. and so the the mosque and everything's up at the at the top. No. I don't think so. I'm not completely up on it. They are ready, though. <laughs> One thing that was clear when we got to go to Israel with the missionary family of Grace, um, they're ready. I mean, they were talking about we've got the red heifers, <laughs> we got there, we and and they're all armed. And if someone would say go to the mount right now, the whole nation would show up there if they, if they thought it was the time. Um, so it's it's hard to imagine how the tension, especially even now in that part of the world. So that's the temple. But the synagogue was a little bit different. We don't know the history exactly of how synagogues came to be. Uh, that's murky in, in, even in the Old Testament. What we, what we do know is that there were synagogues all over uh, the Roman Empire during the first uh, century. And even prior to that, those synagogues played a key role in the life of a Jewish family. The temple, of course, was a big deal. That is centralized worship. That's kind of like uh, for us as missionaries going back to Grace Community Church. You know, <laughs> it's the it's we make our pilgrimage or we um, just go back there to see our friends, to see uh, men who have had a, a, a great role in our lives. But not every Jewish person could make a trip to the temple, not even the required trips that were once or to three times a year. Um, so the synagogue was critical in maintaining connectivity to uh, other Jewish people. It was uh, critical in educating your kids in the law, the Torah. It was also critical in maintaining traditions. So that when Cyrus in three in 539 uh, the king of Persia said the Jews uh, gave a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem. There were some that were ready to go because they still had a very clear understanding of their Jewish identity. There were others who were totally integrated in the culture. Uh, can you think of an example of uh, those uh, kind of people who said, nope, we'll stay and we'll do Wow, whatever we're doing, life's pretty good here. There's a, a book of the Bible de- dedicated to two of those people. Esther was a Jewish, a Jewess, who stayed in Persia and actually became queen. And her uncle, Mordecai, was involved in the politics of the palace there. 
And so when the decree came, you can go back. They said, no, not that important to us. We like it here. And so um, they stayed there in Persia. But others, their Jewishness, their uh, passion to go back to where they came from, to the land that God had promised, was overwhelming, and they immediately made that trip. And there were waves of them that returned, some with Nehemiah, some with Ezra, some with Zerubbabel. Um, but this connectivity that provide, was provided by the synagogue kept some of the Jews from being completely subsumed in foreign cultures. And wherever the Jews went, these meeting houses, these synagogues, um, which just uh, means coming together, um, they, they appeared. It appears that they had a regular order of service, readings from different sections of the Old Testament, and they had a liturgical calendar, which means that they were all kind of following the same um, uh, readings throughout the year. Now, according to one uh, New Testament historian, F.F. Bruce, that there were obviously liberal synagogues and there were conservative synagogues, which makes total sense to us, right? Um, There was some level of freedom. And so you wouldn't necessarily go from one synagogue to the next and say, oh, this is is the same group of people. There would be differences. Um, For instance, while it doesn't seem like the Jews were that big on evangelism, no doubt at certain places you had more charismatic Uh, outgoing people. Um, And so there were probably some synagogues that had more uh, non-Jews that were attending. And through these uh, synagogues, Israel did expose the rest of the world to the Old Testament, to their God, Yahweh, and to the Jewish religion. So again, this is all background. This is a long answer to uh, Becky's question. But... um, Look at uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 21. This is at a meeting in Jerusalem uh, council. And um, James here, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, elder in the church, says in chapter 15, um, verse 21, For Moses, from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. There's a recognition in Jerusalem that all throughout the world, wherever Jews are found, that Moses is represented and the law is being read and taught all throughout the known world. And so this was a pretty extensive network of people and, and of Jewish uh, believers, Jewish uh, Old Testament believers. And we talked about last week when we were talking about uh, Paul's missionary journeys and the background to um, Galatians, how that was Paul's first stop in every town that he went to. Even though he was the missionary to the, or the apostle to the Gentiles, it doesn't mean that he never preached to Jews. His first stop in most places was the synagogue. So we can go back to chapter 13 and read verses 14 and 16, 14 to 16, and get an example of this. So uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. Paul is in, um, I think, Antioch, Pisidia. 
And he says, yes, uh, verse 14, but going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And we saw later that was their practice, that this is pretty much what they did in every new town. After the reading of the Law and the Prophets, so they had their liturgical calendar, they were reading both from the Torah and then from the Prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said this. And so Paul's transformation hasn't gotten made made it back. He, he comes in as a rabbi, a trained rabbi, uh, someone who obviously has some credentials. And like happens in many international churches, you come in and you're recognized as a preacher. They just give you the pulpit uh, oftentimes. And so... Uh, that's what they do here. And, and so Paul stands up and says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God in the synagogue. So what does that tell us? There's Jews and there are God-fearers. And we said last week, we're not really sure, but it seems like the proselytes were one category. They were the ones who completely accepted everything. They would have been considered men of Israel. But those who feared God had done everything. They were very warm to the Jewish religion, but they still hadn't been circumcised. And so they were a different category, but they're here in the synagogue. So the answer to Becky's question, which was in my notes, was yes, non-circumcised people, uncircumcised, had access to the synagogue. Now... um, we also talked about Cornelius, right? And uh, it says in Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius was a God-fearer in Caesarea who gave alms to the Jewish people. And I thought about that a little bit. It's like, well, where or how would a Gentile give alms to the Jewish people? And it makes sense that there was probably a collection in the synagogue. He was probably a regular synagogue attender. Um, that's an assumption. That's not stated in the text. But he had a great reputation among the Jews. That reputation certainly would have been built, probably personally, in the context that he had in the synagogue. Um, And you remember that as soon as Peter got back to Jerusalem, after meeting with uh, Cornelius and baptizing him, that there was, even in the church, among the believers, there was immediately a question, Hey, Peter, we heard where you were. We heard you went out. And you're hanging out with Gentiles, the uncircumcised. This is the those who were circumcised were saying you're hanging out with those who are uncircumcised. So as soon as Peter gets back to Jerusalem, uh, he's called out for this step. But again, he explains everything. I had a vision. They had a vision. They came to me. I went to them. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And so, of course, I baptized them. Um, but even Peter told Cornelius, remember? He says, you guys know, this is a big deal for me to be in your home. <laughs> it was okay for them to come to the synagogue. But for then a Jewish man, even a Christian Jewish man, a believer, to go into the home of a Gentile and share the gospel with him, that was still scandalous. That was still hard for the church to accept. Then we go on to Acts chapter 14. Uh, 
verses 42 and 43. Acts chapter 14, verses 42, 43. Uh, later in this same trip, I'm sorry, what am I looking at here? Uh, is it Acts chapter 13, 42? Yeah, yeah, chapter 13, uh, 42 and 43. Thank you. It says, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging them that these things might be spoken to them at the next Sabbath. So they were in the Sabbath. They got a good response to the message. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had taken had broken up, many of the Jews and the and many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to them and were urging them to continue on in the grace. And they were urging them to continue on the grace of God. So here it says God-fearing proselytes. So it seems like that that was just uh, the Jews and those who were proselytes, a combination of the two uh, titles. In fact, um, it uh, yeah, proselytes here clearly means those who had converted to Judaism. Now this um, message got a huge response. And the Jews who were saying, no, no, this can't work this way, uh, showed up. And as a result, uh, after this, is Paul says he turns to the Gentiles. I will go to the Gentiles. Um, but look at verse 45. It says, when the Jews saw the crowds the next Sabbath, so they went in, preached one Sabbath, and quite a response, a lot of people saying, hey, come back next week. You're going to hear this guy speak. It's pretty crazy what he's saying. You need to hear this. Um, so a huge crowd showed up. It says, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. They were attacking him and cursing his message. Now, again, this is Paul bringing the gospel to Jewish people who didn't know him, just assumed he was a probably a rabbi sent with uh, uh, approval from Jerusalem, we should hear him speak. And he starts saying things like, the Messiah is already here, and this person, Jesus, uh, was killed and, and by the Jews and, and the Romans, and, and he is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all that we've been waiting for. And you can be- just believe in him and, and have life. And, and that was shocking, right? And so they started contradicting him. And it says they were filled with jealousy. This isn't because Paul got a bigger crowd than they had, right? Oh, you know, look at how many people showed up to hear Paul. The word jealousy here is rage. Is they were, they were anger. They were full of fury. And so this was a very hostile, um, uh, explosive situation as Paul was going to the synagogues, to their turf, and calling people out of the Jewish religion into full belief in Christ. Uh, later in verse 50, it says that um, we see this word again, uh, but the Jews incited the devout women of providence, of prominence, devout women. Uh, the word devout there is God fearing women, uh, same word. And so it seems that um, the Jews kind of turned the Gentiles who were open to Judaism against Paul said, look, this is not what, uh, what we've been telling you. This is a completely different uh, foreign teaching, and we reject it. And so word spread. 
people responded, and of course, like many towns, Paul was run out. Um, but just because he was run out of town and said, look, from here on out, I'm going to the Gentiles, that doesn't mean that he didn't go and preach in the synagogues. He continued to do that, but his primary ministry was to the Gentiles. Um, again, it says the next stop, Iconium. He spoke in much in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and of Greeks. So where would he meet Jews and Greeks? Again, in the synagogue. However, um, and that's also in, in Athens later in chapter 17. Um, and like I said before, I, I imagine synagogues were different from town to town. Some probably had more Jews or more open, uh, more Gentiles were more open. Some were probably pretty closed groups of uh, Jews that didn't want to, anything to do with anybody. So small groups of people, uh, strong personalities probably cast a pretty big shadow on uh, those groups. But it was later in, um, they went to uh, Lycaonia, uh, Lystra, and Derba. And during those cities, there's no mention of the synagogues. Um, But again, it doesn't mean they didn't visit. But we do have information in uh, 14.8 where a man was listening to Paul who had never uh, walked in his life. And Paul said, stand up. And he was healed immediately. And it's there that Paul and Barnabas were called. I think Troy mentioned this last week. Uh, they, were, they thought they were gods. The gods have come among us. And they called uh, Paul Hermes and Barnabas Zeus. Obviously, this is not in the synagogue. <laughs> This is uh, probably in the open market. So they did both. They were going to the synagogues on the Sabbath between uh, synagogue meetings or during the afternoon. Uh, They were actively preaching the gospel in public places. And another uh, thing that you will notice if you go through Acts carefully, when Paul is speaking to Gentiles exclusively in the open market, he has a very... uh, Genesis 1 through 11 kind of message about creation, about creation of nations. But when he speaks to the synagogues, when he's preaching in the synagogues, it's very much from Abraham and the law and God's history with Israel. So he even adapts his message. And you can see this pretty clearly uh, to the different um, groups that he's uh, encounters. Again, in Acts 18.4, he says he's speaking to in the synagogue to Jews and Greeks. That would be the proselytes and the God-fearers. And one final interesting example. Um, If we look at Acts 16, this would have been the second missionary journey. Acts 16, 11 through 15. Paul and his team are in Philippi. It says uh, in chapter 16, verse 11, So putting out to sea from Troas... We ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, this is the first place in Europe that the gospel is preached. They went on from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And while we were staying in this city for some days, uh, we were staying in the city for some days, And verse 13 says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had 
assembled. Now, what's going on here? One thing we know about the synagogues is it required 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. Apparently, in Philippi, the Jewish men didn't care enough or they just hadn't gotten their plan together uh, enough to start a synagogue. And so there was no place to go, but they knew there would be some kind of prayer meeting. And it looks like it was a women's prayer meeting. Uh, So they went there and began to explain the gospel. And verse 14 is pretty amazing. It says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. So what does that tell us? Uh, she was not probably a Jew. She was probably a, a proselyte or a God-fearer, right? Um, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken to Paul, and she was a very aggressive uh, in her hospitality, insisted that they come. And think about this. We know that later there was a church in Philippi, right? We also know that later there was a church in Thyatira from Revelation. This is the first convert in the area. Now, obviously, we don't think Lydia became a church planner, but we know that she was very aggressive in her hospitality um, and probably had a strategic role maybe in Philippi where she was working and also back in her home of Thyatira to bring the gospel there. And pretty amazing uh, potential heritage for this lady who believed the gospel um, there in Philippi, and the first convert in Europe, as far as we know, as far as been recorded, um, we can assume that she was a pretty effective evangelist, faithful with the gospel. Now, I know that's a lot of background information, probably more than you were thinking when you asked that question, Becky. But again, I think it really helps us to understand how volatile. The situation was in the first century church when Paul comes along and he starts preaching the gospel. And think about it. From the well, right? There's still plenty of uh, controversy in the church, right? Uh, not over the same issues. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Yep. Uh, people uh, in Croatia used to say that the Baptists crawled on their stomachs and uh, ate babies because they would, you know, it's just crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> crazy stuff. All night prayer meetings were considered who knows what, you know. Um, but think about it a little bit. So, from the Jewish point of view, right? Paul comes in. They're open to the gospel, but they've still got a kind of mental block, right? <laughs> you mean to tell me you're going to get rid of all the requirements to come to church, to, to join this new group that you're, you're forming, that all that is required is faith? And Paul's like, yeah, it's, you're justified by faith, just like Abraham was justified by faith. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a real faith. It's an active faith. It's an obedient faith. I'm still 
I still believe, like John MacArthur, Paul says, in lordship salvation. Oh, okay, well, that explains it. I understand. So you're going to require them to be circumcised. No, I didn't say that. I mean, it would be such a mental block for, for the Jews. They would, think, they would be thinking, just like we would think, someone joins the church, if, if, they're, if they come from a very sinful background, they're going to leave that behind or at least change their attitude about their sins. If they're still struggling trying to break sinful habits, their attitudes toward those sinful habits would have to change. We, that would be the minimum expectation. They would be repentant. They would seek help. The Jews would be thinking, look, as soon as we tell them how important circumcision is, of course they're going to be circumcised. <laughs> I mean, wh- why wouldn't they be, right? So that's the Jewish point of view. It was such a mental block that it would be like uh, us today um, who had someone join the church, but they just they had no change in their attitude about sin um, or their behavior. They would see circumcision as a moral decision. Now, from the Gentile point of view, what are the proselytes thinking? Wait a second. You mean to tell me that circumcision wasn't necessary? Where were you three years ago? (laughs) Why are you coming now with this message? And I'm sure, knowing human nature, there was probably a little bit of if I had to be circumcised, then they got to be circumcised. You know, the whole, if I had to suffer with the gospel, the old guys in Croatia, if we had to suffer, then we need to make sure these young guys suffer a little bit. They just can't come to, come to faith and not suffer. Right? Um, we're not going to reward their half-heartedness. Now, the God-fearers, what are they thinking? Finally, procrastination pays off, right? I am so glad I waited. Um, I knew there was something squirrely about that whole circumcision thing. I'm all in now. I am all in. Sign me up. And you can imagine the attitudes and the anger and the irritation and the different uh, uh, parties that this would cause in the early church. And, And clearly... It clouded the gospel. It clouded the gospel, and Galatians had to be written. Now, how are we doing on time? Wow, okay. Any questions or comments about that? Thank you for that question. It really it was a lot of fun to go and clarify that for me this week. <laughs> okay, now what I was going to get to last week uh, and didn't get to, uh, I want to do a little bit of a timeline of Paul's life, and i got another handout here for you. So I'm going to ask, uh, well, actually, let's split these in half and just pass them around. This is a timeline from Paul's life, and I've got a slide here. You can just pass that out um, if it's useful for you. Uh, Galatians is unique, as we said last week, because it has a lot of biographical information. And when we compare this historical biographical information in Galatians, we need to make sure, we need to understand how does it fit with Acts. And I just found this uh, timeline, and I was looking for different ones because there's different interpretations. Um, But uh, I found this on ESV.org, and I agree with it. I will say that in the 
left-hand column, sometimes there's uh, two dates, a left uh, earlier date and a later date, difference of about three years, sometimes one year. I tend to be on the left-hand side on the little bit earlier dates. So based on my understanding of the timeline of the New Testament, I would say that Jesus was probably crucified in the spring of 30, and then Paul would have been converted around 33. Okay? And so that's, that's important when we start comparing um, Acts and uh, Galatians. Thank you. So let me, uh, uh, this is the timeline. It's a little bit hard to see, but it's very similar to um, uh, what you have. And uh, I'm not going to go through this whole timeline. Don't worry. But, uh, uh, but I will sh- point out a couple of things later in the details. So you can turn the light back on and I'll just explain. Um, I want to look at the text a little bit. So look with me at Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. We get this first kind of biographical insight of Paul's life. Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. I'll just read this. Paul says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me that I might preach to him, preach Him from the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And so Paul says, when I got uh, when God met me on the road to Damascus, I and this is critical, we'll see next week, hopefully, to his argument um, in this book, he says, I didn't get my message from someone else. I got it directly from Jesus Christ. And I didn't even initially go to get approval for this. He builds on this argument, or on this, on this fact. So, that was... Paul's initial experience of the gospel. If we look at this in Acts chapter 9, when Paul is saved, we see the parallels. But we also have some insight here, some important insight in understanding Paul's life. Acts chapter 9, and let's read from verse 26. I'm sorry, from 23. So Paul, um, well, actually, let me read from 22, uh, I'll back up to 19. All right, we'll catch it all. So, um, he took food and was strengthened in chapter 9, verse 19. And now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. So he was one of these guys saved on Saturday, preaching on Sunday, right? Um, He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? They knew why Paul had come to Damascus originally. Uh, 
But Paul, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, verse 23, the Jews plotted to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And then verse 26 says, when he came to Jerusalem. Now, where's Arabia? Galatians chapter 1 says, I went to Arabia, right? Um, Verse 17, I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Where's Arabia in Acts chapter 9? What do you think? Right, right, right. But where is it in in Acts chapter 9 in Paul's life? When did Paul go to Arabia according to Acts chapter 9? After his conversion. So it would have been somewhere between verses 22 and 23, right? Um, Maybe in Arabia he was increasing in strength. Well, no, he was in Damascus still in 22. So in verse 23, it says, When many days had elapsed, so either during that time or before that time, Paul made a trip to Arabia and just probably took his Old Testament scrolls and was reading and coming to understand what is it that has happened here. I I met the Messiah. And so everything that he believed was wrong. Everything he had been taught about Jesus was wrong. And he had to retrain himself, reteach himself. So even though it's not mentioned in Acts chapter 9, There is a trip to Arabia for Paul. But then he returns to where it all began and was preaching there. He was effective, so effective that the Jews concluded, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to, he is having too much impact. Now, that was a period, uh, if we look at verse 18 of chapter 1 of Galatians, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. So he spent time in Damascus after his conversion, Arabia, and back to Damascus, a period of three years. Where would that be modern day? Actually, I can show you that. Uh, Russell was uh, pointing that out. But so, um, this would be uh, Jerusalem down here. Uh, So, Damascus uh, would be further up here, right here. So he got saved here, and then he went to Arabia would be... I'm sorry, no, 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 Arabia is down here. Yeah. Right. He went down here to the to a desert, essentially, uh, to um, study, and then returned to Damascus. Probably people there, Bedouins, different people that he could have as well been preaching to. Um, so he just spent this retreat in the desert for a period of three years. Now, three years could be 15 months. It could be the end of one year, a whole calendar year, and part of a next year. Or it could be up to 36 months. Uh, very hard to know in the Bible when time periods are mentioned 
what's being mentioned. It, does it is it inclusive or uh, exclusive? But could be as little as fifteen months technically. All right. So then, um, Galatians eighteen through twenty two. Continue reading. We'll look more detail next week, but uh, just kind of hitting the uh, geographic considerations. So it says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, who is Peter, and stayed with them 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. Um, And so... This is his first trip as a believer to Jerusalem. Um, And pretty much everybody agrees that that's what is described in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 30. Uh, This is when Barnabas had to kind of bring him along, introduce him to the people and say, look, uh, he's okay. Um, uh, Don't be afraid of him. Uh, Listen to his testimony. And it says in verse 28 of Acts chapter 9, he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Again, he gets to Jerusalem, and they want to kill him. He, he's a known figure, and he's a convert. And so uh, we can't have this guy around. And so it says, the brethren learned of it, and brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So Tarsus is where Saul's from. So he was in Jerusalem down here, and um, they sent him away to Tarsus for a period of time. Okay? Now, if you look at uh, Galatians, it says the same thing, except it says they sent him that he went away to um Verse 21, then I went into one of the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia. So, this is uh, Syria and this is Cilicia. So, again, very clear, complete agreement. Paul was sent from Jerusalem after a short two-week visit back to Tarsus. And he spent several years, many years, in Tarsus. Okay? Um uh, well, they just—he was still a relatively young believer, very controversial figure, um, and so they sent him away. Now, to Paul, it's significant because he's saying, "Look, I'm—I studied this myself. I spent time, and again, we know later in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, he talks about uh, uh, being uh, receiving testimony from Christ. Paul had a very unique, very." real uh, relationship with Jesus. uh, Jesus appeared to him more than once. So his point in Galatians, the significance in Galatians is, this is a message from Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This isn't something I stole from somebody else. Um, And so it's it's all about authority. And then it's not until, um, if we look at Galatians, chapter 2, verse 1, after an interval of 14 years. So this is a significant amount of time that Paul is away, away from the main you know, center of things. Peter's 
uh, goes to visit uh, Cornelius during this time. The gospel without Paul is being opened up to Gentiles. Uh, so, again, there was preparatory work being done for Paul's ministry that it wasn't going to be out of left field that Paul here is going to start reaching out to the Gentiles aggressively. But it's a, a period of time. Now, 14 years, again, that could be 12 years plus a few months, or that could be 14 calendar years. There's another issue, um, and uh, Troy, if you want to turn off the light, go back to this. Uh, another question is, see this 14 years here and three years? Some people would count both events, 14 years and three years, from Paul's conversion. So Paul's conversion was so significant that he's using that as like his before Christ, uh, after Christ, right? Um, others would say, no, it's got to be three years plus 14 years, total of 17 years. But again, that could be as little as 15 years. And that's where the rub comes in. So you can turn the light back on. Um, There are some who would say that when you come to Acts chapter, I mean, uh, Galatians chapter 2, that this has to be Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 was the first church council meeting the apostles together with the elders to meet to officially decide what do we do about the gentiles what do we require of the gentiles and in that meeting it was decided officially that we would not require circumcision but we would ask them to abstain from blood from what is strangled, and from fornication. And that is the official decree of the first church council in Acts chapter 15. And there's a lot of similarity between what Paul describes in Acts chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 2 and that meeting. They're talking about the same things. And so many interpreters, in fact, I opened up an a, a outline this morning, and, and he was referring to Galatians chapter 2 as the council there that took place in Jerusalem. Many interpreters take those events to be the same. And they do this because in their calculation, there's just not enough time between uh, for the, the timeline that, that Paul has created here. And secondly, because of the similarities. There's just too much similarities. They're dealing with the same issue, same people dealing with the same issues. Um, and I'll give you an example. Who has an NASB here? All right. What does it say above chapter 2, verse 1 in Galatians? The Council of Jerusalem. Their position clearly is that Acts chapter 15 and Galatians chapter 2 are the same. But that is not inspired. And if you look um, at um, a little bit further down, let's see, chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, no, still verse 2. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private. This is a private meeting, same, similar people involved, 
Same topics being discussed, but Paul does says this, does say that this is a uh, private meeting. I do not think this is the Jerusalem Council, and I'm going to give you a, a few reasons why. First of all, the timeline can work if this is a different meeting for uh, Paul. And there is a meeting, uh, there is a trip to Jerusalem that's described called the famine visit when the church in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 11 to Jerusalem to take collection to the poor, to the people who are suffering because of the famine in Jerusalem. And that's a shorter visit. Um, and it's during that time, you know, they're going to find out, wow, the gospel's being spread to Cornelius and all these other guys. This is amazing. And so there is a visit to Jerusalem that qualifies as being this visit. It makes sense to me that this is that visit. If Acts chapter 15 is the same as Galatians 2, think about this. Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14 is Paul's first missionary visit, uh, first missionary journey. To me, it would be a little bit strange to verify Paul's gospel after he's already visited multiple cities and planted churches on a missionary journey. Now, theoretically, that would be strange to me. Experientially, unfortunately, I can tell you there's a lot of missionaries on the mission field that have never been trained theologically. Uh, they really have never been taking much, uh, even classes on how to study the Bible. It's shocking what little theological knowledge many missionaries on the mission field have. That notwithstanding, I don't think that's the biblical model, and it would make sense to me that you send Paul and get his message. Make sure his message is clear before you send him out to plant churches. Um, another problem, if Acts chapter 15 is the same as Galatians 2, and Galatians 2 is describing the Jerusalem council, Paul never cited the decision of the council in his arguments with the church in Galatia, the, the, the people who were trying to push a new gospel or push circumcision on him. He never said, hey, not only did I get my message from Christ, but this is the official decision of the church in Jerusalem. You guys are out of here, right? He would have every reason to quote that decision. This isn't just my gospel. A little bit after um, this, Paul's going to talk in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2 of Galatians about his conflict with Peter. It's kind of hard to imagine that Peter would go and, and distinguish himself from the Gentiles after he was part of the Jerusalem council when they made decisions. Now, people can fail, and Peter failed. We fail, right? But seems like that would be a pretty hard pill to swallow. That, And again, when, when Paul confronted him, he didn't say, hey, you were at the meeting. We decided this in Jerusalem. What's up with this? He just said, no, you're doing this wrong. So another reason. Um, finally, and this is the timeline I think happens. You can turn off the light. So what happens? Paul makes his uh, trip to uh, his missionary trips. He's beginning to get feedback. 
He's even gone back and visited. Maybe he begins to see some of the uh, failure or some of the openness, some of the confusion about circumcision. And so as the meeting in uh, uh, the, the council meetings in 49 B.C., uh, I'm sorry, A.D., uh, 49 A.D., we know that. That's pretty much everyone agrees that the Jerusalem council happened in 49. So Paul comes back. And he's waiting to solve this problem. He, he knows this is an issue. He's seen with his own eyes. He's hearing the reports. This is an issue. He, I would imagine Paul's probably pushing for the Jerusalem council meeting. But he can't wait. He knows this is already uh, boiling over in the church. So I think, and I'm not alone here, that he probably wrote Galatians just sometime in the year before that meeting. Because he, he can't wait. He can't wait for everyone to come together to Jerusalem. He sends him this message, and then the council in Jerusalem was a vindication of Paul's gospel, which, which is clear. Um, after the council meeting, it says Paul was sent back to Antioch to let Antioch church know, which is a critical church, about the decision. And then a few verses later, they hit the road, and it makes perfect sense to me that he's going back, having sent a letter, now having had the meeting, hey guys, we're, we're dead on. You're right. I was, I was right when I wrote my letter, and we're still right. The gospel is faith alone in Jesus Christ. You're justified by faith, just like Abraham. Do not let them add to that with circumcision. And so I think he went, he was, he was sent to let the churches know about the decision in Jerusalem. That makes a lot more sense to me. Now, why is this important? Um, Again, circumcision, that issue was a question from day one. We can't underestimate, and as hard as it is for us to understand, we can't underestimate how controversial that issue was. And it was an addition to the gospel. You need to do this, believe, and be circumcised if you want to be fully in. Um, secondly, it's important because I think it's helpful for us to see the consistency of the scriptures. The scriptures agree. There's no reason to doubt the scriptures. When someone says, hey, there's controversy here, there's, there's contradiction here. We may not know the answer, but we can have confidence in the scriptures. Our faith is a reasonable faith. It's built on historically accurate documents And we may not be able to convince our loved ones about that. We may not be able to convince the kids at KSU whose heads have been filled with unbelieving professors. We may not be able to convince our neighbors. But we can have confidence in God's word so that when we just speak God's word, offer God's word, that we trust that the Spirit will use that to open someone's heart. That's right. Give them the scripture. No, Give them the reason for the hope. Well, Isaiah 55, First uh, uh, Peter chapter 315, uh, that the word is not returned void, right? Uh, the sower sows what? The seed. What is the seed? The word of God. Our responsibility is to give people the word of God. It's the word of God that meets the spirit of God in the heart of man that brings forth life. Uh, if you're going to uh, core with us on Tuesday mornings, that's what Pastor Shane is talking about. We give the Word of God to people, 
and we can't convince darkened minds of something other than what they already believe. Only God can do that. But when we study the scriptures, it pays off to compare passages, to think through and, and search for answers. And the answers are there, right? Uh, we can find the answers. It just takes a little bit of work. And God's word always rewards that kind of work. Any other questions, comments? I hope this is helpful. We'll be back in Galatians chapter uh, 1 next week. Uh, continue to pray for Tim. Pray for his trip on his way back. Yeah. I mean, I'm saved, and it's like you try to talk to them. It's almost like having the same argument. Sure. It just takes so much energy and effort and consistency to it's to, to, to give people paths and just obviously wrong. Once they accept that as true, then they can get yep. it. It's easy to laugh at them, but then you know, or we think about using just issues in our own life where we believe exactly. Exactly. It's much harder to get rid of tradition than we want to admit. We think we're the ones free of tradition, but we have our own traditions, right? If, if we're to, uh, for whatever reason, uh, go to a different church next year and they don't celebrate Christmas, we would be in shock, right? What? You don't celebrate Christmas, but there's lots of churches that don't celebrate Christmas. It will not even imagine, you know, no Christmas decorations, no, uh, I mean, it, it, yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of, and it's interesting, too, um, Church plants in Europe, the tradition of the church is the tradition of the pastor, of the church planner. Because he's the one who's the influencer. So if he doesn't play cards, the church doesn't play cards. If he thinks you got to wear long dresses, uh, the women have to wear long dresses, that's what the church does. If he doesn't celebrate Christmas, the church doesn't celebrate Christmas. But, but you, it's just those traditions sink their roots in us, and it's hard for us to discern those things. And it's a good reminder. Uh, thanks for pointing that out. All right, we got to go. Thank you so much for your attention.